Hi, this is Jerry Conway, and you're listening to Amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon The Amazing Spider Talk The Amazing Spider Talk Come swing through the air Sit back and prepare For the Amazing Spider Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. And I am mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but Dan, those annuals, they don't count. But what about giant-sized Spider-Man? Only if they are a giant-sized man-thing of a Spider-Man. <laughs> All right. So so what you're talking about is giant-sized Spider-Man number five featuring the man-thing. Yes. As long as it says the words giant-sized man-thing on the cover, then we're, they, they count. All right. Well, I'm going to hold you to that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just hoping that Marvel publishes a giant-sized man-thing in the future that, that I can hold over your head. There you go. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for the eighth episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, and if you want to learn everything that we know about Spidey, why not subscribe to our show starting back with the very first season? You can enjoy our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. So just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. Yeah, in this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we've been following our favorite web-slinger through the transition into the Bronze Age, a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. Oh boy, on that note, today we wanted to take a look at one of the more outlandish stories that would close out Jerry Conway's run with a bang, shaking up the status quo of the series while closing out all the stories he wanted to tell and would serve as an inspiration for some of the most notorious Spider-Man stories decades later. That is right, everyone. We are talking about the Clone Saga. Not not the Clone Saga, the, the original Clone Saga. Yeah, perfect. We have to be clear. This is the OG Clone Saga. Yeah, not 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 the 937-part installment one. More like, this is like, what, about almost like eight or nine installments? <laughs> right. So if you want to read along with us, uh, you we're going to talk about a couple of those comics. We'll be talking about the events from Amazing Spider-Man issues number 141 to 151. And, Mark, that giant-sized Spider-Man number five featuring the Man-Thing. Right, but it's not a giant-sized Man-Thing with Spider-Man. No, it's a giant-sized Spider-Man, like this like hulkingly large Spider-Man. All right. Well, if you want to read these, you can find them. They appeared in like a bunch of trades over the years. I think it's out of print, but you can probably order it online if you really want to. There's a book called Clone Genesis. It's not like... Maximum carnage on the Genesis. I don't know. We're getting all the way down these different routes. 
or there's a book called The Original Clone Saga, which collects a lot of these. Really, these are all readily available wherever comics are sold, both digitally and in print, as well as on Marvel Unlimited. So if you want to read along with us, they're very easy to find. But as always, we're going to be talking about them from a helicopter view and kind of explaining the story. So don't worry if you haven't read them and you want to just listen to the show. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. To that point, we want to issue a special thanks to the following new patrons for making this episode possible. So first up is Comet Omelette. Comet Omelette sounds like something like you, you would do to induce vomiting, like some ride at like a theme park. There we go. Okay. Well, less vomit inducing is our other uh, patron here, Comic Boy 2018. Uh, Joseph Shad. Mike Roy, unless he's Canadian, then it's probably Mike Wah. We got Fernando Correa, who upped his donation to join our Web Warriors Club. We got Punk Hazard 36. Jesse Saunders. And of course, Cam. Well, uh, thank you again, guys. But Mark, I mean, all that Patreon money is going somewhere good. I, I really like this new hairdo that you've got. I mean, as a bald man myself, I try to be observant about these things, if not a little bit jealous. Oh, Dan, they're just some highlights, I guess, like all over my head. It's, just, it's <laughs> fine, okay? They're good. I guess I never noticed them before, Mark. That, that's kind of funny. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, are you ready to talk about clones? Yeah, of course. I hope you all enjoy our conversation about the original Clone Saga. Well, first off, I'd like to say that what I actually pitched was the Crone Saga about Aunt May. And it was just an acoustics issue in the uh, in the meeting room where we were. And people got it wrong and they ran with it. And I figured when it still seemed like a good idea, I figured, all right, I'll, I'll take the credit. I had no idea, really, <laughs> the path it was going to take. No, the, the reality is uh, the original Clone Story by Jerry Conway it's a very powerful part of my uh, comic book experience growing up. I really enjoyed it. It, it, it said a lot of things to me um, about the circumstances of someone's birth, not really defining who they are and their humanity, etc. All right, Dan. So this is, as we said in the intro, the OG, the original Clone Saga. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this or have have blacked this out because of what it inspired later on, in addition to those issue numbers that Dan gave earlier, I mean, this story was published uh, in 1975. It culminated with Jerry Conway's last few issues on uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Just for a little more context, it's two years after Gwen Stacy was killed off tragically in Amazing Spider-Man number 121. And uh, naturally, based on that story and some of the stories that have come out since then about you know not everyone necessarily being on board, cough, cough, Stan Lee, 
with Gwen being killed, Jerry was basically kind of pressured by editorial to bring back Gwen somehow. But also kind of giving you a sense of what Marvel was like in the 70s. Jerry was like, well, well what if I like bring her back as a bring her back as a clone? And they were like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. <laughs> just, <laughs> just bring her back. But like, it doesn't have to be her. This was kind of a result of some pressure. More importantly, at the time, it wasn't so much about introducing clones into the Spider-Man mythos. It was about wrapping up this very long-running story that Jerry had introduced, starting in issue 129, which was basically his version of the mystery villain. Jerry has said on this show and in other interviews that... One of his favorite Spider-Man stories, the, the one that kind of inspired him to write, was, of course, the infamous Green Goblin crime master, who are these mystery villain stories from the Lee Ditko run back in the day. Jerry wanted to do his own version of that story, and, and he did that vis-a-vis the Jackal, who he introduced in 129, initially as the guy who hired this other lame guy, the Punisher, whatever happened to him, right? And then, you know, subsequently... The Jackal hired the Grizzly and, you know, but basically the Jackal was like a thorn in Peter's side or in Spider-Man's side for the duration of Jerry Conway's run starting with 129. It's funny that you say that because as much as we want to call this the clone saga, it's not, like you said, it's not really about clones. There's like an issue that really deals with that directly. But mostly this is kind of just like a gauntlet of like, I guess, like B-list at the time, a lot, most of them were B-list or even lower villains that the Jackal, like, hired to throw at Spider-Man. And that's kind of the, like, backbone of most of this story. Yeah, I mean, and, and the Jackal is kind of portrayed throughout this run as more of a mastermind, although uh, we do see in some of these issues him kind of take the gloves off, surprisingly. Yeah, I mean, like, the actual introduction of Gwen's clone and then eventually Spider-Man's clone, I mean, this is more done just to kind of, like, play you know mess with with spider-man and mess with peter's head it's it's not so much about you know again like creating this idea of clones and and who's the clone and who's the real although those ideas do get kind of tested in these issues but not in the way that would make you think necessarily that it would lead to this huge story years later although the seeds are there like you know what i mean like they like actually you got to give the 90s team credit for mining a lot from these stories, I would say. Because, like, whether Jerry and Ross Andrew and everyone else involved meant to or not, they they seeded a lot here that could be glommed on to years later, right? Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about that Gwen clone who first appears in Amazing Spider-Man 144. To me, this is kind of the heart of this story. Is like, I think any good Spider-Man story, it's about how these elements from Spider-Man's world impact Peter Parker. And really, we almost get more of Peter than we get of Spider-Man throughout this entire series, except for all the fight scenes. And the kind of backbone of all that is, what does Peter do now that he's kind of embraced the love of Mary Jane, like we talked about in you know, the issue where he goes off to Paris and they ha- they share that fateful kiss together as their rom- romance is blossoming. But it's like literally when he gets back from Paris this starts happening. That's the kind of crux of the story is what if his college girlfriend kind of came back into his life? We've seen a guy grow up, but now he's has the opportunity to like re-embrace more of his youth. And to me, that's the most interesting thing about this book. Yeah, no doubt. Although not, not to sidebar into the absurd for a second here, Dan, but I do want to point out that issue 144, to me, the, as much as I love Ross Andrews' art throughout this arc, 
Is that not one of the weirdest covers you've ever seen? But it's like Gwen's leg and her boot and like Spider-Man just kind of like shir- shirking in terror from it. I, I, like to this, like years later, I, every time I, I think of that issue, I'm always like, who okay? This is like such a weird cover for a, for a superhero book. It is a weird cover, but it's the, you can see behind the scenes them thinking like, okay, our big surprise. Because really, that's not the crux of that issue. She really only comes back in like the final page of that issue. You you see her revealed, but they're like, how can we tease this? Like you know, by making it kind of obscure, but like for those who know, kind of obvious. And it's like, well, what about Gwen is iconic? Like, can we show her headband? I guess we'll go with her boot. You know what you were saying earlier in terms of like this idea of like the youthfulness of love and kind of versus this more deeper love and friendship that was a that was developing between him and MJ throughout this run. I mean, it's 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 interesting how that kind of gets juxtaposed during these issues. And, you know, not for nothing, it also shows the biases of the creators because, you know, as Jerry has said on this show, he was he was never a fan of the relationship between Peter and Gwen. I mean, he always felt it was kind of shallow. And frankly, when you look back at those issues, they were shallow. I mean, you know, it, there wasn't some depth to it until almost retroactively years later. And yet, at the same token, like, you know, the specter of Gwen was always this thing that kind of haunted Peter over the course of these issues. It was the defining moment of Jerry Conway's run at the very, you know, towards the very beginning of it. So I do kind of like how one of the themes throughout these issues is this idea of like, well, who's who's Peter going to go with, I guess, which part of me reading it retroactively, I'm always like, well, he's not going to pick the clone, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's a little <laughs> weird. But even beyond that, it's kind of weird to me how Gwen is almost treated more as an idea or a symbol, not, not as a person. Is Peter going to pick the nostalgia or is he going to pick the real thing? And MJ is kind of presented as the real thing here. Absolutely. I know we've talked about this a bunch and Jerry's played coy about it with the final moment with the door and, you know, but in terms of growing up, but the the implication seems to be that, you know, Peter chooses to grow up and that is kind of locked in stone by the lack, you know, his like loss of his virginity at the end of the issue, which I think is even further solidified, which we didn't talk about in the following issue where Peter's like an hour later and he's exhausted and Mary Jane has left. I mean, in terms of growing up, like, you know, that's kind of a pretty standard thing, the kind of loss of innocence. You could you could call almost the Jerry Conway run the loss of innocence in regards to Peter. It goes from, you know, killing off his youthful girlfriend to the loss of his virginity, you know, if you believe that kind of thing. And whether Jerry intended it or not, it's kind of a fitting way to kind of uh, end this challenge presented to him in this particular story. MJ even gets a moment with Aunt May in these stories, which I thought was a kind of cool moment. Aunt May almost, you know, more or less gives MJ the, the, the have some gumption speech to her about like, you know, fighting for what she wants and, and not taking no for an answer. And even Jerry Conway has like brainwashed Aunt May in these stories to be anti-Gwen. It's like, why is he going to pick her? It's just the girl that died, you know, like, <laughs> his first love, whatever. Look at you, MJ. <laughs> yeah, it's a good moment. And, you know, every once in a while we get those Aunt May moments. And I wanted to highlight, you know, and when we're talking about MJ, I wanted to highlight this moment from Giant Size Spider-Man number five, where MJ is kind of talking to Peter over the phone. And she seems kind of you know bothered by you know, his like lack of interest in her. And she kind of, you can see the pain 
that's going on with her, but she immediately shakes it off and says, I'm not, you know, feeling bad. You know, I, I, I'm the party girl, which is what she exactly what she says. And we give Ron friends and Tom DeFalco a lot of credit for their, you know, all my past remembered storyline that would really like reveal MJ's kind of false facade to hide her pain. But you can see that right here in like these three panels that show that part of the story where Jerry is already laying that groundwork that MJ is a far deeper character than we, than we know, I guess following up what he did in amazing Spider-Man 122, but it makes that transition to what Tom and Ron would eventually do all the uh, more natural. Do we want to talk a little bit about when stuff with Jackal starts to escalate in this story? Sure. Let's give people an idea of like what actually happens in the story. If they haven't read it, not to an extreme detail, but like the broad plot points so we can really dive into it a bit more. It really starts to kick up when Gwen's clone physically appears to me, like the heart, the heart of the action and the drama and and the tension of these issues is ASM one forty seven to one forty nine, right? I mean, do you do am I am I off base and kind of re, you know if you really want to get to the heart of these of the story, those are the three you really got to read, I think, to get to get the, the the crux of everything going on here, right? Absolutely, and I think it really kicks off when we kind of revisit the Brooklyn slash GW bridge sequence. Spider Man is kind of tied up. The, he's captured by the jackal and the tarantula and they take him, you know, back to the site of Gwen's death and Gwen is there and she's all like hypnotized. And it's a really dramatic moment. Spider-Man could die. Gwen could die all over again. It's visually really interesting and an interesting way for someone like Jerry Conway to kind of revisit the very ideas that he put out there in the first place. Another random sidebar, but I, I always found this amusing. The very first Bronze Age comic I ever bought and I don't even remember the context of why I bought it, probably because I just like the cover, was Amazing Spider-Man 147 with the tarantula kind of like attacking with the with the toes out on the cover. I got that probably in the 80s at, in, in an old back issue bin somewhere. And I just remember being so utterly disappointed in the 90s when you never Wizard Magazine. I'm assuming you know Wizard, right, Dan? Of course, when yeah. They would have their hot list, right? You know, of like the big hot speculator issues. And during the peak clone saga, 149, which was the first appearance of Spider-Man's clone, was always at the top of the hot list. That book was selling for like hundreds of dollars at the time. And I never like going back through my collection, like, wait, I, 140. I think I have that. Oh, no, 147. Oh, this comic sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and it sets this whole thing up. Like I said, it ends with 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 Peter, with Spider-Man being all chained up, uh, thrown off the Brooklyn Bridge. You, you got some great art with Ross Andrew throughout, some huge splash pages, uh, huge uh, visual references to the Brooklyn Bridge. They don't refer to it as the GW Bridge in this comic, right? Uh, it's pretty much Brooklyn Bridge throughout. Or they, do they even say? I, I, you know what? I funny. I didn't, I didn't even think to look for that detail this time. Andrew does some cool stuff visually with Tarantula here. I mean, he'll do even more stuff, I think, later on. There's this like really cool spread where it's like Spider-Man in action, like jumping over him and like karate chopping him in the neck. And it's like, like, you know, multi-pose Spider-Man, like sequentially. Just, just some great stuff. Ross Andrew was really something else and i think he gets completely underrated when we when we talk about the great artists of spider-man yeah let's put a pin in that and come back to when we talk about uh issue 149 because it is one of my favorite spider-man action scenes of all time in it with the tarantula which i think nobody talks about because it's the tarantula i feel like also in this in this storyline more so than in others like cheats death a lot 
<laughs> right? I mean, like, they're, they're, he's put in some situations here where you're just like, there is no way. And he finds a way. Like, with, like, getting chained up and thrown off the bridge, he, like, somehow manages to, like, shoot his web, his web slinger and, like, while he's chained up, like, grabs onto something and just is kind of, like, hanging there, like, still in chains, which is kind of wild to me. I, 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 I never quite got how he was able to get himself out of that one. Well, to add on to that, he then like falls onto like a police boat where they're going to unmask him. But then they're like pride gets the better of them. And they're like, we need to show this to people on TV. And Spider-Man's like, I was waiting for you guys to say that. And then he bursts free from the chains and you're like, what? How did that happen? Uh, It's kind of preposterous. Yeah. It turns a plot plot line here. So while, you know, as this, whole thing is unfolding the jackal reveals himself to be miles warren who is their professor and and what miles warren is set up is he even set up during dicko and and lee i think he is right he's like a minor very minor background character but like i mean this is a character that has been seated for years it's not like a new character that was introduced just by jerry conway i think it was introduced but it was a different professor warren like for some reason i think there were two Professor Warren's that they had. There was like a Mr. Warren and a Professor Warren, and they're different people. But at least through the Jerry Conway run, Professor Warren is, is a is a character that repeatedly showed up. It's not like Roderick Kingsley talking about his brother randomly during the Hobgoblin saga. Or even Norman Osborn, right? When the unmasked character is introduced after the masked character. There's really only like two things that keep me from embracing this as one of the best reveals in Spider-Man history. And that's not really like a, there's not much of a list of good reveals like we talked about before, but it's that like the Jackal looks so silly. And then like the Jackal's physical abilities that come out in this story, which is also silly, but we can talk about that when we get, when we get to that part of the story. But the reason why the Jackal is basically hunting down Spider-Man is he is Gwen and Peter's professor at Empire State University. He is in love with Gwen with the help of his uh, aide, Anthony Serba, uh, who has already cloned a frog. He swipes DNA from uh, Peter and Gwen to create clones of them. And through that, I guess that's how he learns that Peter is Spider-Man, right? I mean, is that basically the assumption here? It's never directly said, but yeah, I, I, that that is my assumption for sure. And he's kind of furious that, you know, Peter got received Gwen was on the receiving end of Gwen's love and that he kind of allowed her to die in in some way and so that's why he's kind of taking it out on Peter but his clone of Peter which gets revealed later almost seems like an afterthought like he's really just interested in in the clone of Gwen that he's created and kind of brainwashed into believing that she's the original Gwen and through like hypnotic suggestion like listening to all of his commands. And it wouldn't be until years later that the implication became more overt, which was that Miles was romantically involved with this clone, but it's still kind of unsettling. Oh, for sure. When she arrives out of the clone tube and she's like naked and he's commenting on her innocence, it's really creepy. This is, you know, really outrageously stuff. Uh, outrageous stuff. I, I also, kind of to your point about this reveal and the Jackal's character being a little silly, even how he kind of takes the identity of the Jackal, it's like, he. so Miles kills Serba because, you know, he knows too much kind of a thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then like, 
after doing that, he's like, no, I didn't kill him. And then, like, he hears, like, another lecture talking about the jackal is a nasty canine and cowardly. And he's like, the jackal did it. And it's just like, <laughs> all right, all right. I mean, you know, not quite like watching uh, a mafia movie and becoming Hammerhead, but close. I mean, yeah, like. <laughs> he missed seeing the slide with a picture of a jackal. So in his head, he was like, oh, jackals, they're like green creatures, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, if only he had the visual reference, but like, you know, what, like, like what, what would have happened if like the, t- the professor in the next room was talking about giraffes or something? I mean, would he just be like, <laughs> I'm the giraffe? It, it would make just as much sense, I think. <laughs> more or less. More or less. So, of course, Spider-Man does, of course, escape from the Jackal, but, you know, there's, there's always going to be a rematch. And this rematch, of course, so true to my heart, Dan, it's at Shea Stadium. Home of the home of the New York Mets. I mean, also, I mean, well, did we establish at that point that Peter was a Met fan? I don't think it was established at this point, but you know what? It's once true, it's always true. Everything happens for a reason. Well, that's how they should attest who the clone was. Who was the bigger Mets fan? But in addition to this Gwen clone, this hypnotized Gwen clone, the Jackal has kidnapped Ned Leeds from the Daily Bugle. So Ned Leeds is all tied up. At Shea Stadium with a bomb ready to go off because there's always got to be a bomb. <laughs> it is the weird wrinkle to this whole thing that's like, and Ned's tied up with a bomb. And that's the crux of like the dramatic stakes of the situation. But right, Spider-Man wakes up and there's another Spider-Man there also waking up. And you get this fun moment like straight out of the 60s cartoon where they're both pointing at each other and saying the same lines. And this comic has the best title of all time. And it is, even if I live, I die. I have to say, Dan, Sp- Spider-Man comic titles in the Bronze Age are are pretty pretty lit, man. I mean, they, they had some good ones during this run. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, they fight for a little bit. I think they're fighting. It's like a dumb reason to fight. They're fighting over who gets to save Ned Leeds. Because the Jackal suggests that only the real Spider-Man can save Ned Leeds. Only for that statement to come undone moments later. When the Jackal has like a change of heart because like he realizes that he actually is the bad guy that killed that killed Anthony Serba. And like his two different personalities merge and he jumps at the bomb and frees Ned and blows himself up. And we never heard of the Jackal ever again. Ever again. I mean, actually, you got to give it again, giving giving the 90s crew credit. I mean, like when they brought back the story, like. You're thinking to yourself, oh, it's right. The Jackal did not appear again until the 90s. I mean, that's a, that's a long time in comics to, for a character to be gone that long. I mean, you know, it's almost like bringing back Norman Osborn after 20 years. And there's a perfect reason to do it, too, right? I mean, of course he would come back. He's a clone. I, well, that's it. I mean, and we'll get into that in a second in terms of like that motif that gets uh, introduced here. There is a dead Spider-Man under the rubble. Along with the Mets' chances of making it to the finals. Ah, boo, boo. (laughs) I don't know if I can continue. So odd to me, specifically in this issue in 149, like they let the reader just assume, oh no, the the real Spider-Man is here. And like, it's just so odd to me. Like, like, like really the story is just sitting there on a platter kind of shocks me that no one explored this sooner when you think back to like how inconclusive they leave this whole story. Absolutely. I mean, there's that great panel where, you know, he's like, I am the real Spider-Man. And then, you know, I think it's Gwen who's like, well, how do you know? And he goes, 
far out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great panel where he's like, I guess I don't know. And then of course that would be followed up in issue 150, which, you know, like this kind of anniversary issue where Spider-Man goes to Kurt Connors to kind of test, you know, whether or not he's the real Spider-Man because they had previously done this test on Gwen and found out, Oh, she's a clone. Like, you know, well before the events of the story and so he goes through all these tests and Connors like gives him the paperwork and says, here's the results. You're going to find out. And Spider-Man throughout the story, re- like kind of comes to the realization that he loves Mary Jane. And he, and he makes this kind of proclamation that like, well, because I love Mary Jane, the other Spider-Man couldn't possibly have loved Mary Jane. Like I, I would, so I must be the real Spider-Man and he tears up the results and never reads them, you know, and I'm sure some back to the future guy is down on the street, like taping them all together. <laughs> uh, you know. This is the biggest mistake Spider-Man ever made. He didn't know that in 20 years time, he would really regret, regret having a clear answer on this issue. It's pretty far out, <laughs> to use his own words. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is kind of stunning. And then, I mean, and after 150, it's pretty much resolved, right? I mean, the, the, I mean, did this even come up again during, like, Len Wein's run? I don't remember it coming up at all. You're right. It is truly baffling because even the way Jerry handles it in 150 suggests that he's leaving it open specifically so other people can play with the idea. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me that... You have this story where the superhero is maybe not who he thinks he is. And like the other thing that kind of this brings up to me is, you know, thinking back to the to what they did in the 90s. I mean, you know, we, 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 we've had the story on this on this show with Howard Mackey and Terry Kavanaugh and kind of like. You know, when they were pitching this idea in the 90s, it was treated as like a joke. Like, what are you what are you talking about? And it's like this is a justifiable story to tell, not justifiable how it ended up, but like, this is a justifiable story to tell. And like, there's a lot there. And like, this was a good drama. I mean, like it's, it just killed like rereading these issues, like really like drove that home to me. Like, Holy crap. Like this is really just like there for people to, to play around with. And it stuns me that they didn't. It's funny. Cause they pick up the less interesting thread, which is that like when Peter goes to dispose of the body, someone watches him dispose of the body and sees Peter's face. And like, that's interesting, but not nearly as interesting as if that was the real Peter that got killed, you know? And I feel like this early on in Spider-Man's history, you could do something like that without really making people upset. You know what I mean? I mean, even if you waited a couple of years and revisited it, people wouldn't be so upset. It would be actually a really interesting wrinkle in the character's history that this isn't the real guy. What would have happened if the symbiote found the clone instead of Eddie Brock? I mean, you know, like, sorry, now I'm really getting into fan fiction here. Anyway. Oh, boy. I, I, I'm sensing a what if cooking. Oh, here. boy. We'll, we'll pitch it to, to the Disney streaming channel. OK, so that's obviously like the big thing that comes out of the story in terms of future seeding. But like there there are like a ton of other ideas that kind of come out in, in these issues that I think would be used. I mean, one of the things that sticks out to me early on is when Peter is thinking about Gwen's clone. He even like has this thing of like this thought of, well, what if there's like more than one clone? And, you know, that obviously would get paid off in during 
this, the second clone saga with like, well, you had Kane and spider side and then maximum clonage where there's like literally like dozens of clones of Spider-Man. <laughs> right. It's the one with the cover with like a hundred clones on it. And then of course, even with Miles Warren himself, like you said, I mean, when he comes back, it's like, well, no, the one who died, he's a clone, but then like the, the clone is a clone and then there's another clone and then there's 20 clones, you know, there's 20 Miles Warrens. And like, so I mean, we didn't see it here in these issues, but that idea is certainly floated like, oh, just because there's one clone, who's to say there isn't dozens more? And 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 again, that kind of creates – I mean, I know you and I have talked over the years, is that kind of a cheat with these characters? Because there's like, you know, it's kind of like there's no end. But at the same token, it is like – it's expressed in these issues as this point of like potential horror. Like, oh my god, what if this happened? And – like I feel like that gets played out like to that to that end, like this point of horror, like of all these clones of all these characters. It's crazy to me how much of a story powerhouse Jerry was, because even in like his final stories, he's still like laying out paths for all these ad- additional tales. And it's weird that he would leave the book because like it seems like a guy who's really just kind of revving up to do the next thing. You know, it's 1970s Sherry Conway to me just feels very like unsettled because he is trying to always do the next big thing. I mean, he was very ambitious and I don't want to say that was that was used against him because it wasn't. But like it probably kept his ambition probably prevented, at least in terms of Spider-Man, more really interesting stories kind of coming out in that time. Otherwise, he would have stayed around. I mean, you really get the sense that this guy gets like like where to take this character Next, I do want to give a shout out to another element that gets kind of picked up later on in the series. And it's a really like weird fringe one. It's the Anthony Serba stuff. I mean, like he's like a forgotten character from this story, but he comes back later. There's a point where like the high evolutionary during the like future clone saga. And this is going to sound like a bunch of nonsense and and rightfully so because it was. He tries to convince like Ben Riley and the Gwen clones that they're not actually clones, but that they're biologic. They're people that were biologically reconstructed to look like Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy. And in Peter's case or Ben's case, rather the high evolutionary says that he's actually Anthony Serba who was reconstructed to look like Peter Parker. And that turns out to be not true, but a weird kind of like, Oh, Anthony Serba. Remember that guy? High evolutionary is like the like the death knell of like a lot of stories. <laughs> You're like, are we really doing alternate Earth? You know the 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 high evolutionary stuff. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Here we are. So, what do you think about this story as kind of like the end of Conway's run? Like, do you feel like it's a good way to kind of send him out? Is it a satisfying narrative conclusion to the the threads he kind of in- introduced? I mean, I would say yes. I mean, because I mean, to me, Jerry is known for three thing well he's known for more than three things but like the the three big plot points or developments during his run i mean obviously the first big one is the death of gwen and and norman but specifically gwen was kind of the bigger shock at the time and then of course the development of the relationship with mary jane and then the third was this mystery villain angle that was kind of floating throughout and this storyline ties them all up, even brings in Tarantula, who was a, a Jerry creation. And, and I feel a character that Jerry is very fond of. I mean, you know, we, we may not give Tarantula a ton of credit, but like, you know, certainly in terms of the villains that were created during this era, I think, you know, re- reading interviews with Jerry, I think this is Tarantula is one of the ones he's most fond of. 
Also, cool fight sequence, right? Uh, you you wanted to talk about that in 149, right? Oh, yeah. A brief shout out to issue 149. There's this great fight sequence that I was like talking on Twitter with Jerry about the other day where, you know, uh, when I was rereading these, where Spider-Man is, you know, he's chasing after Tarantula and they go into this, like, I guess, like apartment building or something like that. It's like some kind of warehouse and it's pitch black. So Spider-Man turns on his spider signal and it's a fight sequence rendered completely in flat black. But the only like thing you can see of Tarantula is what the spider signal illuminates. And like later on this like kind of window that backlights everything. It's like Ross Andrews like finest moment. It's so great. Uh, one of the best fight scenes I've seen in a Spider-Man comic. Absolutely. 100% agree. But yeah. So like, I mean, I think if you think of Jerry's run in, the, in, in those terms and ter- like this is this is a good end cap. I mean, he, he ties up a lot of loose ends and in i think gracious fashion we don't see this a lot i think in comics like kind of he puts the toys back in the box but then takes a few other toys out to see if anyone else wants to play with them i mean it turns out they didn't but they were there here you know so i i mean to me this is how you end how you end your run on spider-man i think you know he ends it with something he's very interested in which is like the gwen mary jane relationship and how it kind of ages peter up a little bit and you know, that his final image is what it is. I already talked about it on this show, but like this story, you know, it's about clones and all that, but it's really about that relationship for Peter. And, and that way that's what's something it's at the central core of all of Jerry's books. So, you know, in that regard, I think it's very fitting. What is interesting is you don't like, you see Jerry at like cons and stuff, but they don't advertise him as like the guy that did the clone saga, right? You mentioned the three things, right? He did the clone saga, this long, long on-running mystery. He killed Gwen and he, you know, enhanced the Mary Jane, you know, relationship. But really, you see him advertised as like the guy that created, uh, you know, the Punisher, right? Which is from this run. And this story is, I think, kind of been buried behind the 90s clone saga, right? Enough that we have to state when we're doing this episode, we're doing the original clone saga. Do you think this story deserves to be remembered as more than a footnote to that eventual more famous story? If you're thinking about it in terms of stories about clones, then yes, it's a footnote. If you're thinking about it as like the end of Jerry Conway's run, I think it it, it, it stands on its own. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's, it's but like you said, it's probably one of the better mystery villain reveals that we've had in Spider-Man history because there's been a lot of bad ones. Although I still don't know how Miles Warren knows karate. Yeah, his his fighting abilities in this issue are are a little uh, be, you know kind of absurd, but you know it's comics, I guess. You know, <laughs> to me, this is a very satisfying end of a of a creative run. I think if like this was 2018, 2019, you know, age of social media, where like people would be talking about this stuff nonstop, they'd be like, oh wow, you know, Conway really brought it home. Obviously, this was a different era, so I don't I don't even know at the time if people really thought fondly about it. But yeah, what detracts from it is this idea, like you said, that that this clone stuff got brought back up, which it should have, because as we said earlier in this episode, it was right there waiting for whatever creator wanted to tackle it. But it, you know, obviously the way the clone saga ultimately played out in the nineties. It, it, it kind of tarnished the idea of clones and, you know, clones became basically, you know, persona non grata for years and years until all of a sudden everyone just thought they were cool again, like five or six years ago. So, I mean, go figure. 
this episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while also getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. When we were discussing this episode, you know, and coming up with a name for it, you know, the, the, the word saga in clone saga, you know, I think would probably really become famous in the nineties, but we're kind of attributing it here. And I don't really know if that's necessarily fair, mostly because like you said, it's not really about clones until it suddenly is. But I kind of want to ask you about this book and your thoughts on it in regards to it being kind of like an event book and how Spider-Man books are paced you know, are, are, are the stories are told and revealed in this era versus today. You know, we just kind of got through this big Craven storyline. That was the big event. And, you know, they're very kind of like insular, uh, especially that story, considering it was all under a dome. But, you know, here we've got this like long running thing where the Jackal keeps popping up and sending different foes at Spider-Man as the story is developing over a number of issues but doesn't really cook until it suddenly does like in 149 it's like oh now we're at the story that all of this has been going towards and maybe we're in the middle of that right now with a kindred and that story but like i do think that comics are very different than they were you know in this era do you feel like this kind of storytelling is more appropriate to the character of spider-man than kind of like the modern event books are you mean in terms of like pacing and, and how it's peeled back? Yeah. I mean, we're getting like a eight part story here, but it's not even, it doesn't seem like we're reading one story until suddenly it does. To me, it's kind of similar to what we talked about last season with the whole stone tablet saga, if you will. These were how events were in this era. I mean, even even through the 80s. I mean, like when we talk about the, the black suit, saga <laughs> you know it's 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 kind of, like you said it's kind of like these these individual stories that that have a loose thread connecting them and then all of a sudden you realize in the last one or two installments oh oh crap like these are not just loosely connected these are quite connected everything everything is important here and then you go back and you kind of see that happening i mean i think that's how you how you're supposed to tell an event story instead of like these overly decompressed things where you know you're in the story and you're in the thick of it for the whole time, but like it doesn't seem like anything's actually happening, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to like reading this and, and thinking about the kind of kindred stuff we're going through right now. It, it, it made me kind of think about that again. You know, we're, we've been kind of critical of them not moving that forward very quickly and having kindred still kind of remain in the shadows, but. That's kind of the case with the Jackal here. I mean, I think the Jackal is a little more ever-present in Spider-Man's actual life rather than hiding in the shadows, but we don't get actual action between the two of them for quite a while. And so it made me think maybe that story is more Spider-Man-oriented than maybe we think. I I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed the more naturalistic fit of how this story evolved. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it just, like you said, it, it feels a little more organic and you know things are feeding into each other even if you're like in the moment not realizing it i mean compare it to something like maximum carnage i mean we're getting absolute carnage now so it seems relevant again i mean you know maximum carnage is 
this 14 part story. And it's not that it's 14 parts that it's, I'm critical of. It's the fact that like, you know, from the onset, you're just kind of like similar to hunted. You're just kind of placed in this, this elevated sense of hysteria. There's just like no chance for the story to kind of grow and flow and evolve because like you're just, it's at a fever pitch from the onset and you know, it's supposed to last X number of parts, you know? (laughs) So it's like, all right, well, too much can't happen too soon because there's still 11 more chapters of the storyline. So, And you can even just tell from the covers of these books, they're not selling it as any parts of anything. They're allowing it to just, they're not advertising it that way. They're just kind of allowing it to, to grow, which I think we're kind of both coming down the side of like, we prefer that kind of storytelling. But I wanted to ask you one more question before we kind of bring this to the close is Spider-Man's known for his kind of grounded street level stories with like, you know, radioactivity eventually finding its way in. And there's like, you know, slight, you know, elevations, but like, I I think cloned is probably, I mean, I guess we had vampires and giant robots and stuff like that, but clones to me seems like a truly kind of a, a step into another kind of sci-fi for this character. I guess I'm curious if you think, think that clones are a natural fit to the Spider-Man mythos. And, you know, maybe they weren't, but they are now. And how do you think that this story kind of changed where Spider-Man could go? It is interesting because it's in one breath, it's like, were there any are there any other superheroes that have clones or at least clones to the degree that Spider-Man has? I don't I don't feel or like was Marvel playing around with other clones in the 70s? I don't think they were. You know what I mean? I mean, like the idea of clone was like kind of like this very kind of frightening dystopian thing at the time. But yeah, like how does that fit into Spider-Man? Like, I mean, I would almost think like something like the Hulk or something would be a better world for clones, not not Spider-Man, right? Spider-Man's world is very science oriented. And that's like the one way that I can kind of like make it happen or like think think about it. But like, yeah, I mean, Spider-Man's never dealt with like kind of a personality crisis, you know? Like you'd think like maybe like Moon Knight or something would have clones or something where someone really has kind of like a split identity in some way. I mean, I guess you could say Spider-Man and Peter Parker are two kind of distinct personalities or one's an exaggerated personality of the other. It does seem like an odd element to include. And I guess that's why Jerry never really went down that road of really getting into what it means that Spider-Man has a clone, but it definitely left that possibility open and people run wild with it, obviously. And I, I've never really known how I feel about it. Like, I think I like the idea of the, you know, the nineties clone saga quite a bit. Um, especially where that character got to. I think they pushed Spider-Man in a direction where having a clone would make it more interesting because they made him darker and more disconnected and just the spider. And suddenly here is this Peter Parker character back again. Um, And we're going to get into all this when we get to our season on the clone saga. But yeah, I've never really known how I felt about clones being introduced into this series. It seems like a really sci-fi concept to kind of appear in Spider-Man. You know, one of the big uh, thrusts of the 90s Clone Saga was to kind of get get it to a place where Peter could ride off into the sunset with MJ and the new clone would be Spider-Man. And I feel like that's a that's an idea that feels inherently true to this character, like like this idea that Peter can never truly find happiness because, you know, he has a responsibility as Spider-Man. Well, what if someone else came along that basically was Spider-Man without the responsibility to Peter Parker. So that's an interesting thing. I mean, that to me is where the clone, having a clone makes sense and and can be interesting. But yeah, as a whole, 
like you said, it's a different kind of sci-fi. I think there are other science-oriented heroes in the Marvel universe where like that kind of like dystopian horror makes more sense than Spider-Man. As you're saying this, I'm thinking about Nick Spencer's run, which opened with like kind of like split personality, you know, story with like not a clone, but you know, might as well have been a clone in so- some ways. So like it seems to have become more and more natural to the world of this character to to head down down this route. Are you a fan of the clones now? Like I know that like it's probably ebbed and flowed but like, have you kind of come back around to that like nostalgia for clones? No, not really. I mean, like, it's funny. Like, I, I I'm someone who can go back, look at this story, look at the '90s clone saga, and kind of appreciate what was good about it, and and defend it to a degree. But like, I'm not nostalgic for it. You know, like I, I, it still feels kind of not connected to. What what I want in Spider Man generally, I, I don't know. I, does that make sense? I feel like I would feel warmer about it if there wasn't a glut of '90s content on clones. Like I feel like we we like got that out of our system. <laughs> like there are so many comics focused on clones. It's like I don't need many more because if I ever need that idea, guess what? They definitely thoroughly explored it in the '90s, and you know, I guess with the clone conspiracy uh, as well, which. I, I'm not so sure is so interested in kind of the dual personalities of clones and things like that. It's, it's, uh, it's weird. It's almost like more akin to this story. It, it's, it's kind of about messing up Peter's social life more than it is like dealing with like cloning. I mean, frankly, I think like, you know, it's, it's one or the other when it comes to Spider-Man, we either, we either have clones of Spider-Man or we have like multiversal Spider-Man. So I don't think we need, we can have both. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like to me, like they're both kind of two sides of the same coin. But you know, in terms of where they thematically can go, and when stories try and have both in them, I get even more kind of twitchy about it. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Well, great. We're we're saying goodbye to Jerry Conway on this book, and uh, goodbye to clones for about twenty years, and. Uh, Seems like a fitting place to kind of bring this discussion to a close. Excellent. All right, Dan, why don't you bring us home? Dan, Dan. Whoa. When did I buy a house? And when did we decide to go to a seasonal chronological format for our show? Oh, and hey, how does Superior Spider-Man end? Mark, what are you talking about? You bought a house like a few months ago. You're in like your bar right now. And we changed the format of the show after you published your book because you demanded it because you wanted to promote your book Wait, more. I have a book? Yeah. You spent like six months on it and and drove me insane. And Superior Spider-Man ended like five years ago. You know, like back when we changed the name of our show. You! You stole my life! You stole my life! You're here trying to steal my life! Come oh my god, here. it's the blonde Marginacchio. How did I not notice that all this time? Oh my god. You guys figure it out and just let me know which smokestack to come find the winner at. Thanks for joining us for our eighth episode of our third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, what's coming down the pike for our show? Far out. Actually, Mark, we're going to be talking in our next episode about... A clone 
of Amazing Spider-Man, except this time it's a clone in the newspaper. Yep. We're going to be talking about when Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. launched a Spider-Man newspaper strip. Kind of have an alternate version of Spider-Man's life, although maybe not quite so alternate when it started out. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about like the first, what, like year or two of that strip? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. That's going to be a hoot, Dan. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, count on us repeating ourselves every minute. And slowly working our way through that episode. Yeah, and and every seventh minute will be in color. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what uh, what do our Patreon subscribers have to look forward to this week? Well, they should be checking their podcast feed this week for a special review of Absolute Carnage number one. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of the Nick Spencer run and the mega event Absolute Carnage. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, unless it's Absolute Carnage number one, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, B-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork this season from Nate Stockman. And Mark, you've seen the artwork from Nate Stockman. It's super exciting. I'm going to put an image of it in here. It is awesome, Dan. I am so excited for this piece of artwork. Yeah, it's a it's a scene in uh, the Beyond Forever, I guess, like venue, club, disco, where the Hypno Hustler and Lonesome Pincus are having a battle of the bands and Spider-Man is caught in the middle. Lonesome Pincus, direct from his his failing uh, audition to be the B book reviewer on <laughs> on the Amazing Spider Talk. <laughs> oh, yeah, ages ago, ages ago. So uh, that's really exciting, and we've also got other really exciting news. I've been spending the entire summer rebuilding AmazingSpiderTalk.com to be a really awesome place for you all to go and interact with our show and and kind of experience it on mobile apps and everything. It's been a ton of work, but I'm finally ready to reveal it. And I think by the time you're listening to the show, it should be live. Please, I encourage you to go check out AmazingSpiderTalk.com. It's an awesome brand new site with a ton of things for you guys to do and all of our awesome old content on there. I'm really, I'm so proud of all the work that's been going on to make this happen. And I want to say thank you again to all of our Patreon members who allowed me the kind of time and finances to put something so special together. And I think Mark and I are talking about a lot of changes coming to the show in future seasons, and AmazingSpiderTalk.com is going to be the place where they all happen. So I hope you guys take the time and go check out all the stuff we've been doing over there. That is awesome, Dan. I am so excited for this news. Yeah, it's really great. And while you're there, you can also check out our other podcast. Well, not our podcast, Mark, but a part of our network. It's the Untold Talks of Spider-Man. They're covering all of the secret stories of Spider-Man maybe you haven't read and ranking them together for their Web of Rankings list. A kind of list of all these obscure Spider-Man stories for you to check out. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. If you check out the episode's description, you'll find a link to our Spider-Man talking community and talk everything you want to talk comics about right in there with all of our people. Mark, if I wanted to talk with you on the internet this week, where could I find well, you? Of course, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, and you can always find my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, because I did write a book, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Well, same with me. You can find me on Twitter at, at @supspidertalk, where I'm talking Spider-Man all the live long day and calling out Donny Cates on obscure continuity problems. 
That's a lot of fun. I also want to give a shout out to the Comics Shenanigans podcast hosted by our friend Adam Chapman, who's celebrating his 700th episode, which I cannot even imagine, Mark. I think we're like nearly at 250, but 700 is nuts. And he invites me on every 100 episodes or so, which is strangely every year. So yeah, I was on the 700th episode of that show. So if you want to hear like a long conversation between Adam and me about podcasting and about some of the favorite Marvel books that we're reading today, just go check out Comic Shenanigans podcast. But most fun is our frequent reminder of what makes our show tick. Mark, what's the most fun part of this show? Well, that most fun part, of course, is our mantra, which is... With great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.